Welcome to the Federalist Society's Courthouse Steps Teleforum webinar as today, June 24th, 2022, we discuss Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health decided earlier today by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dean Reuter, General Counsel and Senior Vice President at the Federalist Society. Um, as always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Also be advised that this call is being recorded and will likely be used as a podcast in the future and transcribed for our website. We're very pleased to welcome today one expert. All we need is one expert on this case. Uh, our guest speaker is Allison Ho. She's a partner and the co-chair of the Constitutional and Appellate Law Practice Group at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Uh, she's going to give us opening remarks, probably in the range of 10 to 20 minutes, but we're doing this sort of on the fly, so we're not exactly sure how long her opening remarks are going to go, 10 to 20 minutes or so. But after that, I might have a few questions, and then, as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions. We're going to be using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen to submit written questions. So feel free to submit those at any point in time, and we'll get to those uh, as the program progresses. Uh, with that, again, welcome, Allison Ho. Um, I've got to do this. This is this is the opinion. Uh, <laughs> this is the decision. What does it mean, Allison? Please take us away. Thank you so much, uh, Dean. And if you'll allow me a moment of uh, personal privilege, I've been an active member of the Federal Society since I was a 1L uh, in law school at Chicago. And to me, the Federal Society is a place where people of good faith uh, can come together um, who hold widely divergent views um, on a broad swath of issues where we come together and debate and discuss those issues in good faith. So it's a real privilege for me uh, to be included in today's discussion of the Supreme Court's opinions in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, so. Today, the Supreme Court um, overruled Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, holding that the Constitution doesn't confer a right to abortion and returning the authority to regulate abortion to the people and to state legislatures. And just a bit of background first before uh, we jump into the majority opinion. The Mississippi law at issue in Dobbs prohibits um, any abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, except in cases of medical emergency um, or uh, of severe fetal abnormality. Um, an abortion clinic and one of its providers challenged the law, arguing that it violated Roe and Casey by prohibiting abortions before the viability um, of, of unborn babies. Mississippi, the challengers, and the federal government all agreed in Dobbs that this case required the Supreme Court either to overrule or to reaffirm Roe and Casey. Justice Alito's 79-page majority opinion, which was joined in full by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, holds that the Constitution doesn't confer a right to abortion and that Roe and Casey must be overruled under principles of stare decisis. The majority starts with what it calls the critical question, a question that Casey didn't consider, whether the Constitution confers a right to obtain an abortion. The majority explains that because the Constitution doesn't expressly mention or protect a right to obtain an abortion, that right is protected only if it is implicit within the constitutional text. And notably, the majority points out, Roe didn't specify where in the Constitution that the Constitution implicitly guarantees the abortion right. But Casey concluded that the abortion right is part of the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. The majority goes on to explain that whether a particular right fits that bill is governed by a long-standing framework, both for rights specifically spelled out in the Constitution, like the first eight amendments, and for putative rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution. The court has long required historical evidence that, and I quote, the right is deeply rooted in our history and tradition and that it is, quote, essential to our nation's scheme of ordered liberty. That approach, the majority continues, 
guards against allowing the Supreme Court, in the majority's words, to usurp authority that the Constitution entrusts to the people's elected representatives by transforming the due process clause into what the majority termed the policy preference of members of this court. Applying that approach, the majority reviewed voluminous historical evidence that abortion was illegal at common law, at least after the 16th week of pregnancy. Then the majority turned to American law, noting that when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and that by the late 1950s, at least 46 states prohibited abortion, however and whenever performed, except if necessary to save the life of the mother. Based on that voluminous evidence, the majority determined that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. The majority then rejected the dissent theory that constitutional cases establishing a broad right to autonomy, including cases like Eisenstadt, Lawrence, and Obergefell, about contraception and about same-sex relationships somehow ground a right to abortion. The majority explained that those cases have nothing to do with the question whether the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion. That's because, according to the majority, the right to abortion involves something none of those other cases did, the destruction of an unborn human being. The majority emphasized, though, that just as those other substantive due process cases don't bear on the right to abortion. So too, its decision today in Dobbs shouldn't be understood to cast doubt on precedents that don't concern abortion. Next, the majority considered the doctrine of stare decisis to decide whether to overrule Roe and Casey. The majority emphasized that some of the court's most important constitutional decisions, including Brown versus Board of Education, West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, and the West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, themselves overruled prior decisions. So stare decisis is not an unbending command, the majority emphasized. The majority applied five stare decisis factors and determined that each weighed strongly in favor of overruling Roe and Casey. First, the nature of the error. As the majority put it, Roe was on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided, and Casey perpetuated the errors. Both decisions short-circuited the democratic process and took authority from the people to determine proper restrictions on abortion. Second, the majority homed in on the poor quality of Roe and Casey's reasoning. Roe failed to ground its decision in the text of the Constitution or in history or in precedent, the majority says. And Roe imposed the viability standard, which the majority explains is, according to the majority, riddled with multiple problems. Casey refused to correct Roe's errors and instead replaced Roe with what the majority terms an arbitrary and unworkable undue burden test. Third, and relatedly, the majority considered the workability of the rules Roe and Casey imposed. And it summed up that Casey's undue burden test has scored poorly on the workability scale. In particular, the majority noted that many ambiguities within Casey's test and the slew of abortion cases the courts of appeals have faced in the decades since underscore the unworkability of Roe and Casey's rules. Fourth, the majority explained that Roe and Casey have disrupted other areas of the law, noting that legal doctrines such as standing and res judicata um, have, have morphed to accommodate the abortion right. Fifth, the court noted the lack of any concrete reliance interests. Casey itself recognized that the availability of abortion doesn't implicate traditional reliance interests, like those in property or contracts cases. And the majority held that intangible forms of reliance interests, like the effect of abortion on society and in the lives of women, are concerns not for courts to adjudicate, but for legislatures to consider. The majority thus determined that well-established principles of stare decisis required overruling Roe and Casey. The majority then went on to apply the now governing standard of review, the rational basis test, to the Mississippi law at issue. The majority first explained that courts must give abortion regulations, as with all health and welfare laws, a strong presumption of validity and uphold the law if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests. 
Those legitimate interests include, the majority went on to list, respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development, the protection of maternal health and safety, the elimination of particularly gruesome or barbaric medical procedures, the preservation of the integrity of the medical profession, the mitigation of fetal pain, and the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. As for Mississippi's law, the majority held that this 15-week ban plainly furthered these legitimate interests, is supported by a rational basis, and is therefore constitutional. So I'll end, I'll end my description of the majority, uh, the majority opinion, where the majority opinion ended. Dobbs holds that the Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. By overruling Roe and Casey, the court returns that authority to the people and to their elected representatives. Um, now I'll move on and discuss um, the separate, separate uh, opinions and also uh, the dissent. Um, Justice Thomas, um, who joined the majority in full, wrote separately to emphasize his long-held view that the due process clause guarantees only procedural rights, not substantive ones, contending that any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous. Justice Thomas called on the court at a later date to reconsider all the court's substantive due process precedents, noting that no party in Dobbs had asked the court to do so in that case, and so there was no occasion to do so. And Justice Thomas flagged three reasons that he considers substantive due process um, not just erroneous, but also dangerous. First, in Justice Thomas's view, it exalts judicial policymaking, something he argues is especially clear in the court's abortion jurisprudence. Second, it distorts other areas of constitutional law by recruiting the Equal Protection Clause to provide special protection for rights the court, the court considers especially fundamental. And third, Justice Thomas expresses his view that it's often been wielded to disastrous ends. He flags that the court invoked substantive due process in Dred Scott to justify the continued enslavement of African-Americans and that more than 63 million unborn children have been aborted after Roe and Casey. Given these dangers, Justice Thomas calls on the court to eliminate substantive due process and then consider whether other constitutional provisions like the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause guarantee some of the rights that the court has grounded in substantive due process. Justice Kavanaugh also separately concurred, explaining that he finds the issue of abortion to be, as he puts it, a profoundly difficult and contentious issue because it presents an irreconcilable conflict between the interests of a pregnant woman who seeks an abortion and the interests in protecting fetal life. Justice Kavanaugh emphasized that Americans of good faith take both sides of the debate, and many take neither side in full measure, but instead have more nuanced views that might vary depending on the circumstance. Justice Kavanaugh emphasized, however, that the issue before the court wasn't the policy or morality of abortion. It was the role of the Constitution in terms of the abortion right that Roe and Casey had recognized. And the Constitution, according to Justice Kavanaugh, doesn't take any side. It is neither pro-life nor pro-choice, to quote Justice Kavanaugh, it is neutral. For that reason, Justice Kavanaugh explains, the court, like the Constitution, must remain scrupulously neutral on the issue. The Constitution leaves the question of abortion to the people to resolve through the democratic process. And for that reason, Justice Kavanaugh also rejected the view that the Constitution outlaws abortion altogether. Justice Kavanaugh next remarked that while he agrees that adhering to precedent is and should be the norm, every member of the current court has voted to overrule precedent. Indeed, he points out every member of the court since 1921 has done so too. According to Justice Kavanaugh, this history demonstrates that overruling constitutional precedent is, precedent is permissible uh, where that precedent is egregiously wrong, has caused significant jurisprudential or real world problems, and has an engendered reliance interest that would be unduly upset. Because those factors were satisfied here in Justice Kavanaugh's view, he concurred. Justice Kavanaugh further emphasized, along with the majority opinion, 
that overruling Roe does not mean the overruling of other precedents and doesn't threaten or cast doubt on those precedents. He also expressed his views that a state could not ban a woman from traveling to a different state to obtain an abortion without violating the constitutional right to interstate travel and could not retroactively impose liability for abortions that predate today's decision without violating the due process clause or the ex post facto clause. The chief justice concurred in the judgment only. His concurrence homed in on the question presented, saying that the court granted cert only to decide whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. In fact, he pointed out, when Mississippi petitioned for review, it expressly disclaimed any need for the court to overturn Roe in order to uphold the law under challenge. And in its merits briefing, the chief justice pointed out, Mississippi continued to stress that the court could rule for it without overruling Roe. With that in mind, the Chief Justice took what he describes as a more measured approach that adheres to the fundamental principles of judicial restraint, not deciding anything more than is necessary to dispose of a case. Um, the Chief Justice um, has frequently articulated this principle as being when it is not necessary to decide more. It is necessary not to decide more. The Chief Justice goes on to agree with the majority that the viability line of Roe and Casey must be discarded because, as the Chief Justice puts it, that line, quote, never made any sense. Under the Chief Justice's view, the court's abortion precedents require only that a woman have a reasonable opportunity to choose whether to continue a pregnancy, and viability isn't necessary to safeguard that right. Mississippi allows three months for a woman to choose whether to terminate, and in the Chief's view, that time period is sufficient to safeguard a woman's right to choose. In reaching his decision, the Chief Justice pointed out that Roe's viability analysis, quote, came out of thin air, close quote, in the first place. States didn't tie the abortion right to viability, and no party or amici proposed that test either. Instead, the Roe court assumed that a state's interest in protecting an unborn child only became compelling once the child could live outside the womb, because that is when a child could live outside the womb. And the Chief Justice called that reasoning circular. The Chief Justice also pointed out that later opinions eroded Roe's viability line, because the court began to recognize the interest in not causing pain to non-viable unborn children and rests in upholding the integrity of the medical profession. And viability doesn't further these goals either in the Chief Justice's view. So the Chief Justice reasoned, stare decisis doesn't counsel sticking to the viability line. And it is there that the Chief Justice ends his analysis without further discussion or analysis of whether women have a constitutional right to the opportunity for an abortion in the first place. Turning now to the dissent, um, we have Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan somewhat unusually co-authoring their 60-page dissent. The dissent primarily discusses the important policy implications and practical impact of the majority's decision to overturn Roe and Casey, something the dissent faults the majority for not seriously considering in its opinion. The dissenting justices explain that Roe and its progeny recognize the divisiveness of the abortion issue and struck a balance between a woman's right to choose and the state's legitimate interest to protect the life of an unborn child. The dissent criticized the majority for claiming that these decisions didn't adequately weigh the state's interest in protecting the life of an unborn child, asserting that, quote, nothing could get these decisions more wrong. Instead, the dissent accused the majority of dispensing with that balance altogether and stripping women of all rights from the moment of conception by lowering the standard of review to rational basis. The dissent rebuked the majority for, low, for this lowered standard predicting that it will lead to women being forced to give birth to children who are the product of rape or incest or have severe physical anomalies and to giving birth despite the risk of death or physical harm to themselves. The dissent also expressed particular concern for the enforcement of anti-abortion laws. While traditionally states criminalize the act of providing abortion, the dissent expresses concern that states will also fine or imprison women for obtaining abortions. And it worries that states will eventually try to block women from traveling to other states that have legalized abortion, which is a concern that Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence addressed. 
But what the dissent found most threatening was that the majority's opinion contained no language preventing the federal government from banning abortion nationwide. So Dean, I would welcome questions or from you or any uh, members of our audience. Yeah, first, let me let me uh, acknowledge your kind words for the Federal Society at the outset, but also congratulate you. That was a, a sweeping and comprehensive coverage uh, of, of a very, very long set of opinions that came out just hours ago. So thank you, uh, and obviously to your team for putting that all together. Um, I've got plenty of questions of my own. The audience is already lining up with questions. We're using the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen if you'd like to submit a question. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could now talk about um, just some of the, what's next and what are some of the practical implications of this decision? Uh, you know, what, during, uh, while we were awaiting the decision, there was a lot of discussion about this is outlawing abortion. Abortion will be outlawed throughout the country. Um, we started to hear a bit of a change in the narrative that no, this means that, that the decision-making is going back to the states uh, and that's where it will rest. But uh, could, you, could you address some of those uh, questions? It, sure, and, and, and Dean, I think you have it um, precisely precisely right. Um, and I think just as just as Kavanaugh's opinion um, put it well, that the the import the import of today's decision is that um, the Constitution is neither pro-abortion nor pro-choice. Pro it is, um, as just Kavanaugh said, it, it is it is strictly neutral. Um, what the majority opinion did today, um, importantly, is it it set out. Um, the standard of review, rational basis, that will apply to any further challenges or future challenges um, to state state laws. But under under the majority opinion today, um, or states states remain um, free to regulate abortion um, subject subject to the rational basis test that the majority lays out today. Terrific. And I have a second question. It's going to incorporate one of the written questions from our audience members. Um, but that's what is what's the role of the court, the, the U.S. Supreme Court or other federal courts going forward as the states begin to implement this? It seems that the majority opinion again and again says this is not within the jurisdiction of the federal courts. Uh, is there a role for federal courts who, as states you know, uh, state laws come into effect as some of these trigger, so-called trigger laws come into effect, or as they pass more rules and regulations, what's the role for the federal courts, if any, going forward? Well, I think I think the, the role of the federal courts um, uh, go, going forward um, will be consistent um, with the role of the federal courts today in terms of um, resolving any future uh, challenges to state regulation of abortion again, applying applying the the rational basis standard that the majority does, and and adjudicating um, some of the questions that the dissent the dissent highlighted, and that Justice Justice Kavanaugh um, confronted and and expressed his his individual views concerning uh, questions to come. Great, um, and what about? Um... You know, you mentioned um, the other privacy rights, I guess we call them collectively, uh, and the effect of this decision, the majority of the opinion on those privacy rights. It seems that uh, from the draft that was leaked uh, to the final opinion uh, that came out this morning, there was some language added that emphasized that this opinion does not uh, pretend to, and it specifically disclaims applying to those other privacy rights. Can you speak to that? Is that correct? Do I have that right? No, I think I, I think you you have that exactly right. Um, Justice Alito's majority uh, majority opinion um, takes pains and, and repeatedly emphasizes um, not 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 just that those. Nothing in today's decision in Dobbs um, threatens or casts any doubt on those decisions, but he also quite expressly went on to explain why, um, because not, none of those cases um, involve um, the, the, the destruction of, of, of unborn life. So I think, I think Justice, Justice Alito's majority opinion went out of its way um, 
to to say not just that today's decision uh, didn't involve the the rights at issue in those cases, um, but that the decision doesn't cast doubt on those cases and explained why. Um, Justice Kavanaugh picked up on that theme as well and reiterated it in his concurring. Uh, opinion and in Justice Thomas's separate concurrence, indicating, you know, his his well-established view um, on substantive due process uh, and his, uh, expressing his willingness uh, to consider whether, you know, those decisions are are right. No, no other justice joined. Justice Thomas's concurrence, but even that concurrence goes on to say that the job of the court would be not only to uh, to consider sort of that substantive due process question, but also to consider when or whether any of these rights could be grounded in other uh, other provisions of the Constitution. So all all of after today's decision, um, uh, you know, I think all, se several members of the court went out of their way um, to say that nothing in today's decision threatens or or casts doubt on. On yes. those cases. I think you mentioned that Clarence Thomas even went on to mention, uh, give an example, maybe the privileges and immunities clause of, of the 14th Amendment as, yes. one, as one place uh, that this right could possibly arise. Yes. Or it could possibly arise privacy. Yes, absolutely. Good. Um, you mentioned um, well, some of the commentary that I've heard uh, late this morning after this came out uh, talks a lot about the court overruling a precedent that has been in place for nearly 50 years. Um, and, and you explain that the, the, the majority opinion goes on to discuss that and talk about stare decisis in, the five, in a five-step analysis. Is that five-step analysis, is that a new framework or is that, uh, if it feels to me like these are common uh, commonly discussed in, in, in Supreme Court jurisprudence. I don't know if they've ever been collected in one place and used in, in, in that stepwise fashion. Uh, that's my first part of the compound question. The second part is, does the dissent ad address that at all? So, uh, so let me be, let me begin with the first part. First part of, of your question. Um, I I share your your view that. Um, the factors that the court discusses, I think, are the, are the same ones that courts have always discussed when, when considering whether, uh, whether stare decisis uh, should, should, uh, should favor um, overruling or reaffirming um, a, particular, a particular precedent. It, it, it may be that, that Justice Alito's majority um, opinion sort of organizes organizes those considerations um, a little a little a little a little differently. I think you know my read, uh, it, it, which admittedly is not a, not a thorough read, and, and of course these all of these opinions and the issues they raise will you know today's only the beginning of, of the discussions about them. I know, um, but I, my sense of the of the of of the the dissent's dissatisfaction. Um, with the court's application of, of stare decisis was really more more on a on a substantive level in in terms of the conclusions that the court reads uh, and less on I guess what I'll call the procedural level in terms of the framework for uh, evaluating the the stare decisis question going further. Yeah, interesting. Um, you might not have read this carefully enough to know, but did did the dissent talk about reliance interest? I mean, I've heard a lot of weight put behind that uh, on one side of the argument that we have this entire uh, you know 50 years of, of culture built up around Roe versus Wade and, and a woman's right to choose. No, that's that's right, Dean. And I, I think where where the um, the majority and the dissent um, sort of engaged on on this point, uh, is sort of how to how to characterize reliance interests, where the majority pointed, you know, to concrete. The majority stressed the importance of, of concrete reliance interests, as as one sees in in property contract cases, where I think the the dissent's view is that is too crabbed a view. Of reliance interests, which in the in the in the dissent's view are 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 more are more capacious. So I do I do think that 
completely outside uh, of the abortion um, context. I, I, I do think that might be one, one area where we might see the court continuing to join issue in other cases that present uh, the stare decisis analysis, you know, how you, um, how you characterize and what, what, you know, what concrete uh, means um, and what is too capacious to be sort of included in that, uh, in the header of, of reliance interest going forward. Yeah, I'm wondering also sticking with the dissent, um, did anyone respond, did the dissent respond since it was co-authored? Um, you mentioned that is unusual. Is that, um, is that to demonstrate unity among the three or how, how unusual is that and what's the purpose of that if it's if you can ascertain the purpose of that? Uh, sure, and I wouldn't, um, you know, the dissent doesn't say and I, I wouldn't wouldn't presume to, to, to speak um, for them, um, but but I, I think you know my how I just me personally how I would would understand would understand that is 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 the desire um, to present a a unified um, front and and have the dissent in this case not be associated with any particular uh, particular justice, um, but rather reflect uh, the unity of of the dissent. Um, and sort of come, come together uh, with one voice uh, rather than either a series of dissents um, or, or, or as is more typical, um, a dissent where you have one authoring uh, justice who was then joined, joined by others. Yeah. Um, reminds me of per curiam uh, opinions, but uh, on a dissenting side. <laughs> Um, you mentioned- Yes, that and it's, it's, also, it's also in some ways an, an, an echo of Casey. Right. itself, where, where where you had um, justices um, O'Connor, uh, Kennedy, and Souter writing. You, you mentioned that, that Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, noted that uh, every current justice, indeed, I guess you said every justice since 1921 has overruled a precedent. Um, that if I remember correctly, I think he was making some of those points in oral argument or, or beginning to make some of those points in oral argument. I'm curious, sticking with the dissent, did the dissent address that at all, concede that or acknowledge that or just uh, not address that at all? No, I think I think the dissent, the, the point that the, the point that the, the dis dissent uh, made and one of the I think one of the one of the if you recall from oral argument, um, one one of the questions uh, was whether um, whether it would whether a a decision whether just being egregiously wrong um, would be sufficient uh, to overrule a prior decision of of the court and and um, you know. Hopefully, one of our one of our audience members will correct me if I'm wrong on this. I believe that the dissent today um, says it embraces that as a, as a, as a theoretical view that it, it would be possible to have a case that is so egregiously wrong that that would be sufficient ground without more, but that that would be extraordinarily rare and that it would virtually it, it would almost never um, be the case. But but as I read the dissent, it did not close the door entirely. On that, so I, I think I think the I think the disagreement between the majority and dissent in this case really does. I think the heart of it is a disagreement about how how to apply the test and the principles in any particular case, whether stare decisis should apply um, or not. Um, and kind of each each side accusing the other of misapplying that test rather than any kind of more broadside disagreement uh, about about the the doctrine itself as opposed to how it applied in this case and how it will apply in, in cases down the road. Yeah, good. Um, I wonder if you could say more about the five to four slash six to three decision. And I, I guess that means the position of the chief in this case. Uh, and and what are the practical implications of that? So I think the, pra the, pra the practical implications um, primarily are that there, that there were uh, five votes um, to overrule Roe 
and and Casey. And so that 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 is that is the holding of of the court's uh, majority uh, majority today. Um, so I think to to that extent, I think the 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 chiefs the chief separate concurrence. Um, I think it's it's it, it is a you know it is a textbook example of the, of of the principle that um, that I think may may well characterize uh, his his approach to the law and his tenure as as chief justice certainly, which is you know when it is when it is not necessary uh, to decide more, it is necessary not to decide more, and I think that that principle really animated. Uh, the, the chief's occurrence in the in the judgment only. Uh, interesting. Uh, there's a question in the Q now. And by the way, if you're in the audience, if you have a question, use the Q and A function at the bottom of your screen. We'll get to as many of these questions as we can. Um, uh, and this gives me a chance to plug a, a Federalist Society initiative on state constitutions, where we are taking a closer look at state constitutions and the the, the condition of the ratification documents around state constitutions. But the question is whether or not this decision opens up an avenue for states to recognize protections for the unborn under their state constitutions. I guess a corollary question could be, does this uh, open up an avenue for states to recognize a woman's right to choose under their own state constitutions? Yes, absolutely. And today's decision, um, you know, I think most most of the most of the commentary um, on on Roe and Casey, you know, has has focused on its restrictions um, and rightfully on states, you know, ability to regulate um, abortion. But it it also put limits um, on that ability, sort of in the other direction. Um, and and those those limits are now gone today as well. So that 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 issue. Of regulating um, abortion, it returns fully um, to to the states today um, for the people to to legislate as as they see fit on on either end of that spectrum. If that answers if that answers the question, Dean, I think you're on mute. I, I was determined, Allison, to get through this whole call without doing that, but. <laughs> I do have I do have some background noise where I am, so I'll continue to mute myself, um, but try to come off mute appropriately. But um, the, the question here uh, that uh, um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to delve into this as significantly as to answer this question, but it's whether or not the draft different, the leaked draft differed significantly from the final product. I don't know if you've done a side by side. Uh, but any notable differences that have jumped out at you? Uh, so I, I, I do not, I do not have an answer to that question, um, Dean. I, I actually, I did not, um, I did not read the leaked um, draft um, as, as a former law clerk um, who well remembers um, having then Chief Justice Rehnquist talk to all of us about the importance of confidentiality and. And and the court's work and and a and a and a, and a vow and an oath that I took uh, that is not uh, not time limited and didn't end with my time at the court. I didn't and I say this without you know no, no judgment for others who would who would take a, a different view, but just for me, um, I just I it didn't seem right um, to review to review the draft. So I um, I didn't, but I'm I'm sure I'm sure that I haven't I've been I've been you know, busy processing the opinions and and putting putting this discussion together. So I've I've I, I I'm, a, I'm I'm oblivious uh, to the commentary today, but I'm sure I'm sure that will be a big um, a big focus in and of itself going forward. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people will um, uh, will respond to that, and there'll be a lot of work around that question. Yeah. Um, so here's a question from, from the queue, and that is, I read the majority opinion as a surprising, if limited, reaffirmation of substantive due process. Huh. Did, did I read that correctly? And that maybe goes to the interaction between the majority opinion and Clarence Thomas's uh, concurring opinion. Yes, I think, I think, I think that's right. Um, I don't, 
Uh, I would want to think I would want to think a little a little bit a little bit more um, about that um, in terms of, of how to characterize um, the, the majority's uh, take on substantive due process more generally. Certainly, it is accurate to say that um, the majority did nothing to question substantive due process more generally. Uh, took took great pains to very precisely identify. Um, the right at issue in Dobbs and why that right is categorically different than the rights at issue in any of those other other cases. And again, you had Justice Justice Thomas writing separately, and no other justice um, joining that. So whether whether that constitutes kind of a surprising reaffirmation of substantive due process by the majority. Or, or simply a desire or reflection not not to engage in that, um, and certainly not as fully as uh, Justice Thomas's the dissent does. I would, um, I think, I think that that is another interesting interesting question that will continue to be discussed and, and debated as we really dig, dig in and uh, go through all of these all of these opinions in more detail in the days and years to come. Good. Yeah, and again, I appreciate you coming and, and speaking to us and taking questions, you know, literally hours after this, uh, uh, this complex uh, piece of work came out. Um, you, you might have already said as much as you want to say, but here's another question from the queue, and that's if you could talk a little bit more about the difference between substantive and procedural due process analysis. Um, you know, when I was in law school, I was I was an unsophisticated kid and I heard procedural due process, that pro procedure process, those things to me, you know, held together. Substantive process, uh, that, that sort of stuck uh, in my mind. But um, go ahead and say what you'd like to say on that. Sure. Well, I mean, to quote, you know, you're, to, to quote Justice Thomas's concurrence, right, substantive due process uh, in Justice Thomas's uh, words is the an oxymoron. Um, I think in, in terms of in terms of the analysis, you know, a, a due due process analysis um, also looks in history and and sort of traditional notions of um, of justice and and fair play. Um, whereas the substantive uh, due process analysis sort of has multiple levels of. You know, characterize how to characterize the right at issue, um, how to determine whether the right at issue, as Justice Thomas's, uh, excuse me, as Justice Alito's uh, majority opinion goes on, is sort of embedded in the nation's history and is essential to the nation's uh, concept of 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 ordered liberty. I, I think you know, I think Justice Thomas would say that even kind of describing that analysis, sort of. Sort of underscores the the complexity of it, and I think in Justice Thomas's view, um, the the room for judicial um, overreach and policymaking, um, inadvertent as it may be, that can creep into the substantive due process analysis um, in Justice Thomas's view in ways that sort of standard, as you put it, kind of what you learn in law school um, about traditional due process um, principles doesn't doesn't involve to that extent. So um, I, I will unfairly ask you a question that includes yesterday's Second Amendment question, but some of the initial oh. some of the initial commentary I've heard um, about the Dobbs case uh, points out um, what they would describe as tension between today's decision and yesterday's. That is, that today's pushes an issue back to the states explicitly, uh, and yesterday's. Um, you know, it was an imposition of a of a Supreme Court opinion on a state law. Um, do you have a, Do you have any response to that? So, I guess um, I guess my response, just my re my kind of off the cuff um, response to that is, I I would look. I, I guess, if anything, I see more similarity um, and actually kind of a line that's now I think kind of uniting several different areas and doctrines. And that that is just the increasing importance of historical analysis um, a, across a, a broad range of issues. If you think um, think of the establishment clause and how the court's cases um, have started to focus more and more on on history. 
Um, I think the Second Amendment context the same. And I think today, and you, you may recall that one of one of the majority's um, main criticisms uh, of Roe was what the majority termed its kind of shoddy historical uh, analysis. And, and its criticism of Casey was that Casey really didn't didn't sort of undertake that at all. It just proceeded um, from a stare decisis um, point of view. So I think I, I I would say that today's decision in Dobbs, yesterday's Second Amendment decision, um, really can continue what we're increasingly seeing at the court, which is um, more attention uh, to history um, than than I think perhaps we have seen um, before in. In, in a wide variety of, of issues and doctrines across the board. Great. Um, we have, believe it or not, 65 questions in the, uh, in the <laughs> So we will, we will probably use the remaining 14 minutes. And I'm trying to distill some of these and, and batch them. Uh, a number of folks are interested in uh, the, the prospect of federal legislation. What does this uh, decision mean for the prospect of federal leg legislation in one direction or another uh, legislation uh, or even, you know, uh, yeah, federal legislation preserving a woman's right to choose or 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 uh, preserving a right to life for the unborn. Well, that that was one that was one of the one of the points um, that that the dissent um, emphasized um, was that it 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 pointed out that the majority really um, had nothing had nothing to say um, about that, which which was a particular concern um, to to dissent. So I think I think that is that that is really another in terms of your earlier question about you know what what next? Um, what are we go, what are we going to see next? I think I I, I focused on you know state state regulation, um, but I think as as many many commentators uh, and legislators were we're all we're already talking about even before today's uh, decision is the possibility of uh, legislation on on the federal level. Good. Um, does the Roberts concurrence endorse or reject the majority's rational basis standard? Oh, interesting question. Um, I I would say. Um, that just I, th I think I think the Chief Justice would say that because he didn't he didn't need to reach that question that his his concurrence really does not um, does not weigh in on that uh, at all. He his 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 concurrence sort of announced uh, um, uh, kind of another another approach in in terms of the, the reasonableness. Uh, standard that that he that he would apply. Um, so I guess it's it's an interesting question um, whether those uh, whether those would amount would amount to to basically the same the same thing in practice or not. It's a very interesting question. Um, so here's uh, I'm trying to to uh, distill two questions here in in one, and that is that Alito's statement about some substantive due process cases given that they were separate from the holdings uh, and given the Thomas concurrence, uh, can, can those statements be treated as dicta going forward and basically, I suppose, ignored? Um, and combined with that, will, will the court in the future, this is speculative, accept Justice Thomas's invitation to reconsider substantive due process? Um, a lot, a lot packed in, a lot packed into those, those questions, you know, at, as as you know, Dean, that the question of what's dicta, um, what's not, is 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 itself right its own um, its it, its own its own topic. I mean, I I I think um, really, I, you know, I th I think I would, you know, I would, I, I think I think courts going forward um, will will accept um, the majority. Uh, at its at its word, um, and I think the fact that the majority went on to distinguish those cases. Now you may not you may not be persuaded by that distinction or that explanation, but the fact remains that the majority didn't just say 
well, those cases aren't before us. And it didn't just say those cases could be distinguished different ways. It, it, it was very precise um, about the difference um, and why, why its decision today um, did not. Now, the, the dissent, the dissent's not buying, not buying that. Um, but, I, but I think in some ways, the fact that the dissent itself underscores, um, uh, right, that, 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 that is certainly what, um, what the court said and what the, the court thinks it said. Um, so I, I think that's, that's one of those areas that'll, that'll unfold going forward. In terms of, um, you know, in terms of the court reconsidering uh, any of that, you know, as to, to, to state the obvious, you know, the court, the court takes the cases or doesn't take the cases that that come to it, and so I think um, we'll just we'll just have to to wait and see how you know what gets challenged, what makes it uh, what makes it to the court, um, but with with only with only Justice uh, Thomas, um, only Justice Thomas's concurrence, and no other justice joining it about being willing um, to entertain. Um, challenges to the current substantive due process uh, jurisprudence. Um, you know, pro pro probably the smart money will be on that. It 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 will be quite a while, um, right before before the court before there is a um, before there are four votes to grant cert in a case to undertake that that analysis. Yeah. And now now we're returning again to the New York gun case and. Um, again, somebody's asking about the differences between these two cases and, and the fact that some of the uh, uh, some legal commentators are, are again pointing out the tension. Is it enough to say uh, in, in the distinction between those cases that one is explicitly um, a, a bill of rights kind of right and the other is, is not mentioned at all? Does that resolve the issue? Is that enough uh, enough of a response? Um, I think that is, I think that is certainly, um, that, that is certainly one response. I think Justice, Ali, Justice Alito's um, majority opinion did, did take pains to say that, you know, even, even for, for rights not specifically in the Constitution, um, that the analysis goes, goes on to determine whether nonetheless those, those rights um, are implicit in, in the Constitution. So there is still, under the majority's view, um, there is still that, 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 subsequent, that subsequent analysis that, that, has to be, that has to be undertaken. So I think that, that, is, cer that is certainly um, one point of distinction. I think it's an important point of distinction. I think that weighs heavily in the historical analysis, but I think Justice Alito's majority opinion made clear that um, even for rights that are not enumerated specifically in the Constitution, but um, are arguably implicit in it, um, then you 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 go on and do the historical analysis um, and the other prongs of that analysis for those for those um, asserted rights as well. Yeah. Um, considering the difference between dicta and and binding holdings, uh, you know, in, in I think you mentioned in the Justice Kavanaugh concurrence, he said that states can't ban women from traveling uh, to procure abortions. It, it feels to me that some people, well, I, do you agree with that? And and is that dicta? Did any of the did the majority pick up on that at all? No, um, the majority the majority did not did not pick up on that, and and as you know, it's not it's not uncommon um, in in Supreme Court decisions to to have concurrences that sort of take on or address concerns of the dissent that the majority simply doesn't uh, doesn't address or doesn't doesn't weigh in on and, and and Justice Kavanaugh was quite clear in his concurrence to to, to ascribe to say these are these are this is my view um, this is my view this is um, this is what I um, what 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 I would hold and so so going going on record in a way that um, you know is 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 admittedly not not a holding um, they, these were the views of 
of, of Justice Kavanaugh, but nonetheless, I think anytime a Supreme Court justice takes pains to ex express his or his or her views, that's that's something that lower courts um, can take into into account, but not as not as binding precedent if and when they face some of these issues. Yeah. Um... There's a strategic question here in the queue, and that is, you know, now that we see the lineup, Justice Thomas uh, assigned this opinion to Justice Alito. Uh, why not write the lead opinion himself instead of concurring? That that requires some, um, I don't know, some special insight or speculation on your part. But I don't know if you want to respond to that. Um, yeah, that's uh, that. It it it. Um... It reminds me, kind of in a in a different context, of um, you know you may you may recall in the um, race preferences cases, uh, Grutter um, and Gratz, how um, Justice Stevens uh, was in the majority in those cases and assigned uh, to Justice O'Connor uh, to write the majority opinion in 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 those cases, um, which is I think an, an act in that I think underscores a judicial uh, modesty and humility um, and may, may spring from some of the discussion that we've been having about Justice Thomas's views on substantive um, due process that he expressed in his, um, in his, in his concurrence. I wouldn't want to speculate on whether and to what extent that, um, that, that played a role, but 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 you're 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 right you're right to to underscore that 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 is it is a moment, um, and 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 to to sort of echo the point you raised um, earlier that it was um, Justice Thomas who delivered the majority opinion of the court in yesterday's Second Amendment decision, um, which which I think I think is one of his um, you know most momentous majority opinions in his tenure on the court. So both opinions, again, the gun case in this case, seem to emphasize text and history. Um, there's a question in the queue about what does that mean if you can discern it in particular for tiers of scrutiny analysis, mm -hmm. the future of tiers of scrutiny analysis. And a related question, what does that emphasis uh, say about the legacy of Justice Scalia? Can you hear echoes of mm -hmm. Justice Scalia here? Can you hear his voice in this sort of analysis at all? Yes, well, you, you, you hear you hear his voice um, throughout these these opinions um, because he's he's quoted um, pretty extensively uh, throughout, and I think I think that it's it's a very interesting question um, about uh, you know the court's um, growing allegiance to text uh, and history and how that interacts. Um, with the tiers of, of scrutiny. Um, and, uh, you know, you talk about stare, stare decisis and reliance interests. Um, you, do, you do sort of see the stage set um, for kind of two really um, deep-seated and profound, you know, text and history on one side, and yet these tiers of, of scrutiny that um, have really been a part of, of the, the court's jurisprudence. Uh, for 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 decades. So I, I think again that'll that that will be some uh, another thing that will be interesting um, to to see un unfold going forward. Great. We've got about sixty seconds left, and I want to give you a chance to say anything you have else on your mind, or or to wrap up, or express a final thought. Oh, I'll just um, nothing. I'll just I'll just express again my gratitude um, for the opportunity to to join uh, today's uh, discussion. Um, and I'm sorry that we couldn't get to <laughs> all whatever whatever 60, 65 um, questions. But that I'm you know no, no doubt in the days, weeks, and years to come, we'll we'll be able to dig deeper. Um, into the opinions and, and the important issues that they present. And that is for certain. Um, and by the way, we got up to 69 questions. So yeah. 
I, I'm not <laughs> the Federal Society record. So, um, and to, to your point about future analysis, we are in the process of putting together a panel discussion, a, pan, a webinar panel uh, that we'll host in the very near future. So to the audience, uh, yeah, check in and, and, and make sure you uh, you avail yourselves of that opportunity. But um, Allison, again, I want to thank you so much. This has just been tremendous, uh, the opening statement, but also your, your ability to respond to these questions. Uh, really impressive. And I certainly appreciate all the time and energy that went into this. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Well, thank you, Dean, for the opportunity and thank many thanks to the audience for the, for the really great and thought-provoking questions. I will also thank the audience uh, for their time and for their questions. And a reminder to the audience, again, check your uh, emails and watch our website for future programming, including a panel next week, likely, on Dobbs. Uh, but until that next programming, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone.